Hello, this is Jane Sigford, convener of the podcast Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. This is the second interview I have done with superintendents around the state. The first was with Matt Gross, superintendent of Deer River Public Schools. Today's session is with Sandy Lewandowski, superintendent of Intermediate District 287, located in Plymouth, Minnesota, which is in Region 9 West. There are four intermediate school districts in the state, Districts 916, located in the East Metro, 287 in the West Metro, 917 in the Southern Metro, and the newest, 288 in Southwest Minnesota. The intermediates offer 120 specialized educational programs and services that member districts individually may find too difficult or too costly to provide on a smaller scale. For some services, students are referred by their district of resident. For others, students and parents can choose to enroll directly. The intermediates operate on a fee-for-service basis. Revenues generated by tuition billing. They offer area learning centers or ALCs, career and tech centers, special education, just to name a few. Of the four intermediates, District 287 serves the most students in Level 4 special education programs and services of the total four intermediate districts. Sandy Lewandowski has been a teacher of special education for her entire career. She worked in Minneapolis for six years and then came to Intermediate District 287 at the beginning of the push for mainstreaming our students. Her original specialty was in working with students with physical disabilities. She branched out to serve other students, such as those identified with emotional behavioral disabilities, some of our autistic students, and others. She loved being an itinerant in 287. She became assistant superintendent for three years and then the superintendent, which she has been for the past 13 years. Three years ago, Sandy received recognition in being awarded Superintendent of the Year by Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Of course, I had to ask her if she was related to Robert Lewandowski, who played on the Polish national team in the recent World Cup. Sadly, she said she didn't know. Poland didn't do too well, but at least they made it to the World Cup, which is no small feat. On Saturday, May 26, 2018, the STRIB published an editorial by Sandy entitled Resources for Student Mental Health Are a Must. Because of that article, she was interviewed on Channel 11. I then interviewed Sandy about her concern about mental health issues with our students, the correlation with school violence, and the increase in concern over these issues. You will hear several themes emerge throughout the course of this interview, including what Sandy thinks could be done to address the issue of mental health services and increasing violence in schools. When I asked Sandy why she wrote the editorial and what precipitated that, this is what she said. I think the intermediates, the four intermediates in Minnesota, have been seeing an increase, um, significant increase in the mental health needs of students coming through our door. And with at least some of those students who have significant mental health needs, there is a propensity toward violence. And so when uh, we 
uh, saw the incident in Minneapolis at Harrison with an educational assistant being attacked. It unfortunately did not surprise me because we are seeing um, an increase in injuries uh, for for kids um, that have those kind of significant needs, injuries to staff. And so uh, it it provided me a, a moment when my thoughts could come together and explain why we're seeing this. And it's primarily because there are fewer and fewer uh, places for kids to get their mental health needs met. Uh, but school is always there. And so school has become a bigger provider, the front line, if you will, of children's mental health. And in districts like ours, those are those are significant mental health needs um, that you're trying to address. Do you agree that schools should be the frontline provider? I've changed over time oh. for a number of years. Um, in fact, uh, probably most of my career, I did not believe that schools should be the provider of mental health. I have come to the realization, however, that we are going to have to become a provider of children's mental health because it is not being picked up in adequate ways by other entities, whether it's um, health insurance or um, the kinds of uh, social service support structures that are out there. They're inadequate to address the level of need coming through the doors of our public schools. And so somehow we have to evolve as a uh, educational system in partnership with other providers to become that, that kind of entity. We hear more now about the linkage between school violence and mental health issues. There's increasing pressure on schools to be a provider for mental health services. Are there more students with mental health issues? Are students more violent than in the past? What do you think has caused this increase? I think there's multiple factors contributing to it, but some of the things we're seeing are trends that uh, I would agree with. Um, for example, we're seeing a, a drive to reduce um, kids being placed in juvenile detention kinds of programs. And so those kids come into the school when they may have previously been placed in juvenile uh, detention kind of programs. But the resources schools need to help support those schools, those kids, are not coming with them. Uh, similarly, uh, we are seeing fewer uh, residential placement, residential treatment placements, either because the placements don't exist, um, or because providers are going out of business, or it's simply um, un, uh, untenable for them to get placed there by either family or county services. So they're coming into uh, oftentimes intermediate programs for service, and we're not prepared to meet them because we do not have the mental health supports. So when you have those kind of trends happening, it to me it seems inevitable that you're going to end up with uh, more safety kinds of incidents and uh, quite possibly injuries to staff. Programming and facilities have to be specialized to meet the needs of these students. Intermediate District 287 has been innovative in trying new approaches. 
Sandy describes some of the things that they are doing. We had to adapt. Um, we're much more than a school system, I think, right now as an uh, intermediate district. Uh, we have uh, invested heavily in social-emotional learning. Uh, we invest heavily in uh, positive behavioral supports. Um, increasingly, we have uh, invested in uh, school psychologists, social clinical kind of social workers, um, behavior specialists that um, understand uh, the kinds of life stressors these kids have had to go through and what might be um, at the uh, at the basis of their behavior and then try to address it once we see it. What we're missing, though, is that clinical mental health piece most most times. And so uh, we've been fortunate in that uh, last, uh, not this most recent legislative session, but uh, the one before last year, uh, to get a two-year uh, $1.8 million uh, innovative mental health grant and so we're starting a uh, co-located kind of intensive mental health program for our kindergarten through third grade kids who are emotionally and behaviorally disordered. And we'll be doing that with Wilder. Um, and it will be the equivalent of residential treatment, but just through for the six hours a day. And so uh, that is something that I think we have to continue to expand in order to adequately treat these kids. And you are talking about K through three. That's where we believed uh, we wanted to invest the money because we think that's where the, uh, the trajectory can change uh, for these little kids. So do you have a special facility for this? Is this in all of your buildings? How do you, where is it located? Um, this particular program will be at our North Education Center in New Hope. Um, that's our largest facility and our newest building. Um, intermediates have really, uh, in many cases, needed to build customized facilities to adapt to the kids coming through our doors. Um, you can no longer serve a student with these very, very high needs in a traditional kind of building. You need to have it be customized to meet their particular behavioral needs. And so that's where this particular uh, uh, partnership will uh, take place, but uh, this year I testified that I could use 10 more programs like that across my district. I asked Sandy if there is a trend in the particular type of students that they are seeing. I on these mental health services. I think we see two kinds of, of kids basically falling into this high need category. Kids who are um, uh, identified as emotionally and behaviorally disordered and kids who tend to fall more on the autism spectrum disorder and we get uh, staph injuries from both populations of kids but um, we see some very very high needs coming out of our autism programs and uh, a lot of bites a lot of kicks a lot of um, uh, head butting kinds of injuries uh, we see uh, uh, in our EBD programs a different kind Kind of, of injury, and it, it tends to be uh, ones with a, acute mental health kind of um, background uh, operating. So kids who may be actively um, um, 
thinking about taking their own life. We've had kids attempt suicide in our classroom. Uh, we see kids having psychotic breaks. Um, we send kids to the um, hospital via ambulance and they're back in our schools the next day. Uh, we get kids who are not properly medicated uh, and therefore are, are having um, uh, uh, issues related to not having the right medication. So there's a variety, I think, that we see, and uh, it is significantly higher from the first year I became superintendent to now as night and day in terms of what we worry about. In fact, I would say that uh, when I first became superintendent 13 years ago, um, kids that uh, are we were seeing then are back in our member districts now in, in special education setting three programs, for example. The kids we're dealing with are kids who were uh, in, in acute residential treatment kind of facilities. So it really has shifted to a much higher need um, over time. To meet the needs of students requires highly trained teachers, specialized professionals, all of which are very costly. And this is what Sandy had to say about the cost of the programming. It's, it's uh, definitely a very high-cost business. Our average student is probably $60,000 a year, and we have kids who top $100,000 a year. And that, unfortunately, is paid for by public education, our member district, who uh, is the resident district sending those students, um, bears the cost of that, and that is what goes into the cross-subsidy. And so uh, it, it uh, I, in fact, recently recently said to a group of legislators it could be called the mental health subsidy rather than the cross subsidy because I think it's unmet mental health needs that are at the bottom of a lot of that cost and I uh, my sense of purpose is, is is driven by trying to find a new innovative model that those kids can get that mental health uh, in a blended kind of program within their, their intermediate school district programs. And what would that look like? Well, back to our elementary kids, we will have um, uh, the Wilder Foundation providing a... a, a clinical therapist embedded in the classroom, so a teacher and a clinical mental health ther therapist will work side by side. Uh, there will also be a, a, a separate clinical mental health therapist working with the family. There will be trauma coaches who will work with our staff uh, when a student uh, has a behavioral incident to try to coach us to understand the trauma behind that, that little kid's head and uh, how it relates to the behavior. So it'll be a very intensive model. In, in essence, we're bringing residential treatment into the school. It's just that kids are not uh, sleeping overnight in our school, basically. Superintendents are aware of the statewide shortage of licensed special education teachers. And the teachers at 287 require even more specialized training and skills. I think it, one of the things that uh, is fairly common sense but not always realized is that um, uh, teachers 
uh, get their preparation in curriculum. They get their preparation in areas outside of mental health. And if we are to have educators working with these very high-need students, we have to provide them professional development uh, in those, those areas of mental health, those areas of trauma. We need to give them strategies. Um, and that all, all takes time. Uh, we cannot expect uh, our, our staff, and we struggle with this, and I suspect many other school districts do too. With the very limited number of professional development days you have in a school year, uh, those are easily taken up with the educational curriculum side of our work. Um, what we need is additional days to provide professional development in, in these other areas, whether it be social-emotional learning or, or mental health or behavioral strategies. Um, that, that is kind of the new frontier for us. Not only do teachers need training in curriculum and pedagogy, plus how to make modifications and work with different types of learners, but they too need emotional support because of the high stress of their jobs. District 287 instituted a creative program called the District Crisis Response Team, which shows the type of support students need, but the adults on this team also require specialized training and personal support as well. People like teachers also require emotional support because they too are dealing with trauma, grief, and violence as part of their job. There's a book called Help for the Helpers that was recommended to me by Matt Gross, superintendent of Deer River, that describes some strategies in supporting people like teachers, nurses, doctors who are in the helping professions so that they can stay healthy too. Here's what Sandy described about the Creative District Mobile Response Team and what 287 does to support the staff, including their administrators. Uh, one of the things that we've gone to in the last... Um years actually, uh, is that we recognize that uh, we as leaders were in a constant state of crises. There'd be a behavior, there'd be an incident, and we were all rushing to deal with it. Um, from myself all the way through the principal to even some of the lead teachers. And uh, yet uh, some or all of us were not necessarily trained to do it, and we certainly weren't doing it very efficiently. And so we went to a model where we uh, established a, um, a district mobile response team, and on that team uh, we have a, a a very seasoned uh, school psychologist. Uh, we have a clinical mental health provider. We have um, a uh, another psychologist, and we have uh, uh, one of our best safety people, uh, and a school counselor, all with varying backgrounds and various skill sets. And so, with our five schools on any given day, we can have crises all over the district. And uh, we have set up a system where that district um, mobile response team will deploy anywhere in the district at any time, depending on the crisis. And typically it's when a student is in crisis at a level beyond what the building feels they can deal with, and then we'll bring in the mobile response team who will um, help work through with county crisis um, to do an assessment of the student. They'll make a determination of whether uh, the child should be sent by ambulance to a hospital, um, but they'll handle it at a higher level than the school will be uh, able to handle it. Um, the second thing they do is they really uh, try to provide 
provide support to those teachers who have been part of a crisis. Oftentimes, students who have been in, or I'm sorry, teachers who have been injured, um, they've been traumatized or experiencing secondary trauma. And uh, we increasingly need to pay attention to those professionals. Um, they, uh, they are the ones that uh, may not realize it in the moment, but they're going to experience some uh, post-traumatic kind of, of um, uh, emotional distress themselves. Sometimes that means uh, we have a continuum of things that our principal has uh, available to them. We'll, we'll tell a staff person they can go home for the rest of the day. We'll set them up with um, uh, some kind of supportive therapy. Uh, next year we're going to even have some serenity rooms that staff um, if they've been through a particularly traumatic kind of situation can go and just basically take some time to chill down and meditate and, and calm themselves after an incident. So we're really becoming more even though we're kind of in the new frontier of that, uh, we already have a continuum of supports that we like to provide our, 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 our staff because that we know they work in very stressful situations and unless we attend to our staff they're not going to be able to maintain that. There is no question that schools are seeing an increasingly complex school population with increasing societal pressures being placed upon us. Mental health and violence issues are being addressed by probably every district in the state in some way. If we take a step backwards and use our wide-angle lens instead of the zoom, we could think about how do we envision the wider society working with schools? How do schools need to interact and incorporate services from community organizations to work on this issue? Is there a role for our professional organizations, especially to educate the general public and our legislators about the intensity of these issues? Is there a role for the teachers' unions? Sandy has some insights. Is we have to uh, blur the lines between schools and other community organizations, whether it's it's county social services, whether it's the legal system, uh, where uh, or whether it's it's police. Um, we have to be able to um, operate much more seamlessly with those organizations. I've had experiences earlier this year, unfortunately, where I had a a, a school lockdown because of a threat a student-to-student -student threat. And I could not get through those other systems in order to um, give me the assurance that this uh, student who had done the threatening had access to weapons. And I had to keep the school um, uh, in lockdown all day long, trying to find out whether there was access to weapons, which in that case was a, a, a something we had to know. Uh, and that, to me, is something that is becoming more of a reality. Um, and so the, the way to solve that is to get those um, access points for information opened up. That said, I've also worked on that legislatively, and it is a humongous kind of, uh, of challenge legally to open up those data privacy kinds of laws. And uh, uh, we've not been uh, successful or have not even really inched forward in that regard. And yet I think it's a pivotal thing that has to happen. What would it take to open it up? 
um, it would take a concerted um, effort across uh, all entities, um, and it would take uh, a, probably a massive legislative uh, intervention to change them because the privacy laws are so tight and so strong that it's going to take a large effort to open them up. Sandy's ideas of what the teachers unions could do is very different than the role that we have seen in the past. They could, uh, I think, continue to share that as a priority um, and uh, secure the kind of, of uh, resources needed. What I fear, and I saw especially late in the school year, uh, is a troubling trend that um, uh, teachers become more and more fearful, kids become more and more fearful, and each threat becomes a um, uh, evidence that you're in an unsafe situation. And I think that our teachers' union, as well as our, our professional organizations from a leadership standpoint, need to uh, be speaking up about that reality of fear that is starting to sink in um, and what it's going to do to our larger system over time. We're already in a teacher shortage before this recent trend of school shootings. And um, I think anyone can uh, understand that you need to be a, a good teacher uh, or that you can only be a good teacher when you're not afraid of the atmosphere that you're in. And right now we have a fearful um, climate in our educational communities. Uh, I unfortunately had two um, very serious threats the last week of school, um, so just the week before last. And the difference in how people reacted uh, at the end of the school year, even from the beginning of the school year, was significantly higher, a lot more fear. Um, and I think uh, it, it's a very troubling trend and one that our, our, both our teachers and our leaders need to be out there advocating uh, for um, changing that trend. Sandy started the interview by saying that she found a profound sense of purpose in her job. She used that line several times throughout our time together. She recognizes that educational leaders also need to stay energized, healthy, and rejuvenated. Most times I feel a profound sense of purpose and headway um, if I were uh, allowed myself to be vulnerable. Um, those two threats two weeks ago um, pretty much did all our leaders in. Um, well, we, we remind ourselves um, we, as, as leaders and as teachers, that we need to take care of ourselves. And um, uh, you cannot do this work without being in a healthy place yourself. And so that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, uh, includes exercise and healthy eating and um, learning about what's going on. Um, those are all things that, that are, are critical. They're not optional in this line of work. On the survey I sent to superintendents earlier this year, most responded that they would like to help change the public message about education, to help people understand the importance of a free public education and that that education is crucial for all kids. Sandy, and obviously she has a staff who share her beliefs, 
feels strongly about the moral purpose of what she and other educators across our nation do on a daily basis. Well, Jana Shortal uh, is an excellent uh, TV interviewer, and uh, she was immediately touched by the, the students and was very personable um, and easy to talk to. I think the 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 thing that came out. Um, uh, was actually the the part by our my, one of my assistant directors participated in the interview, and um, she asked Jana Shortell asked her, so why why do you do this? And um, her answer was around it's a moral issue, it's an ethical issue. Um, we need to do this work. Um, and it was such a strong statement about, I think, the foundation of education and the foundation of education for all kids, whether you are a talented student or you are a student with great need, uh, you deserve that public education. And so I think that came through very strongly. Um, and uh, I think the other thing that came through was, was the significant change in responsibility for public schools being um, at the center of this work. Although Sandy works in a specialized setting, there are some things we could all learn from her experiences. When I asked what she learned that she would offer to other superintendents, this is what she said. I, I think most superintendents increasingly understand uh, how many kids are coming through our doors with mental health needs. One in five kids has a diagnose, diagnosable mental health condition. It means 20% of our kids could be receiving services because they have a mental health condition. What I think um, other schools could learn is that the, the way to do that is to open our doors to providers and blend the models in. What we're short, and I think this is even an aha on my part just in the last year, what we have to find is the non-reimbursable costs for that service. Because the providers are going to come in and they're going to bill insurance. It's that portion, whatever that is, maybe 25% that isn't reimbursable that we need to find the funding for. And then it's not so overwhelming to figure out how to do it. And uh, I think we need to find that through policy changes. In fact, right before you came in, there was a, a, actually a business, quite a, a reputable businesswoman who saw my editorial and came in, and she wants to organize a public health campaign um, and involved the University of Minnesota and was searching out uh, ways to to solve this problem. Um, so you know, I think it's it's a manageable problem. Uh, we just have to get the right leaders in the room to solve it. So what are some next steps for Sandy? Um, I have to keep saying these, this is our reality. Um, and these are the kinds of, of mental health conditions we're seeing. These are the kinds of injuries our staff are incurring because people don't understand it. And once they understand it, then I can open the conversation. So I, uh, I have been um, more vocal. Uh, and will continue to be uh, more vocal in the upcoming year about this issue.
Some of the statistics that Sandy gave me on her handouts were that in the year 2016 to 17, there were, at District 287, 266 critical incidents, 320 staff injuries, 51 ambulance calls for mental health crises, and 71 psychiatric consultation referrals. We have to change our model. We can't sustain what we're doing right now. Um, I know as intermediates we can't sustain it. It's too expensive. It's too, there's too many safety risks. And so um, even our buildings can't be sustained. We get damage in our buildings on a regular basis. And so we are compelled to find a different way to do this. And uh, I actually, over the weekend, I wrote to my highest contact in Hennepin County Jennifer D. Cabellas and, and said, you can't sustain it, we can't sustain it, isn't it time for us to think of something uh, in the middle? And so that's, that's kind of the where my philosophy tells me and relationships and communication are the way to get there. In summary, Sandy Lewandowski is a leader who assesses the needs of her students and staff to create programs and services designed to meet unique needs. She's willing to try new models and new solutions, yet she relies on what we know to be important, like the value of the relationships we create with our students and our peers. Her collaborative style reflects the need for 21st century leaders to be listeners and team members. As she names it, her profound sense of purpose is evident in the creation of several creative ideas that are designed to provide a meaningful public education to students who have high needs. Some of the ideas are use of trauma coaches, implementation of district mobile response teams, designing unique facilities, crossing bureaucratic lines to work with community agencies, utilizing school safety coaches to diffuse situations, implementation of a K-3 grant that is basically a residential program for young children to receive intensive instruction, but they're still able to live at home. The creation of serenity rooms, the use of a circle for students and staff to share concerns and gather support from one another. The ability to put aside the curricular lesson for the day and deal with more pressing emotional issues, just to name a few of the outstanding facilities and programs that 287 and other intermediates offer. All of these programs could not exist without a culture of mutual respect, trust, and belief in the moral purpose of a public education for all kids. Many thanks to Sandy, her staff, and other educators who work hard every day to teach and support our future generations. Thank you for listening. Again, my name is Jane Sigford. My email address is jlsigford at comcast.net if you have some words of wisdom to offer us all. To close... Some final words from my favorite philosopher, Dr. Seuss. I can only hope that this saying is true. Quote, sometimes the questions are complicated and the answers are simple. Thank you for listening.